0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Uh, Welcome to Sojourn. If you don't know me, my name is Marshall, one of the pastors here, and it's my joy uh, and honor to be able to proclaim the truth of God's word from uh, the book of Colossians chapter two uh, this morning. Uh, If you're a visitor, just want to say that we're glad that you are here, and I would highly encourage you. Uh, to take a step towards connecting to the community here. We really do believe um, that uh, the church is first and foremost a people to belong to rather than simply an event to attend on a Sunday. So uh, would love to get to know you uh, in that way. We're going to jump right into Colossians, so if you'll do me a favor, I just want to say a word of prayer before we do that, and then we will uh, jump in. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. Uh, I thank you, Father, that this morning um, we are, by our very nature, qualified to be named among the saints. And Lord, that qualification is not something that we have earned. It's not something that we have accrued um, over lives of moral good. Rather, Lord, that qualification has been obtained through the person and through the work that Jesus did on our behalf. And so, Lord, this morning we rejoice accordingly as men and women who have been made free from the bondage of sin and of death and transferred now into your kingdom, a kingdom of glorious light and life. And, Lord, we acknowledge that that work has been done, again, apart from us. It's been done by the power of the Spirit, regenerating Um, our cold and dead hearts. And so uh, this morning, uh, we ask, Father, that your Spirit again would come and would speak to us with clarity from your word uh, that we might be not conformed to the ways of the world, but rather transformed by your word. We need you for that. We have no hope apart from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most frequent questions, uh, or depending who I'm talking to, accusations, um, that is leveled against Christianity is this. Isn't Christianity just another religion attempting to achieve moral uniformity for the sake of control? Or to word it a little bit differently, isn't it just like every other religion, a rigorous moral code? that you uphold in order to keep or make God satisfied with you. And while it's true that to follow Jesus, there is morality involved, there is a morality that He prescribes to and for His followers, this is not ultimately the essence of the Christian faith. It is essential, but it is not the essence. And Paul's going to make that very clear to us today as he encourages both the church at Colossae and us by extension to not look to or add external ritual for the sake of salvation, but rather he invites us to trust in the internal transformation that can only be provided through the person and work of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. Um, We're going to run through this text knowing, right, that there's a lot of nuance in it that we're going to miss because of the sheer volume of text that we have. But we're going to walk through it quickly, talk about it so that we understand what it's saying to us, and then we'll talk about its implications. So let's start in verse 6. And it begins with therefore. So what we need to know is that this is utterly tied to what we talked about last week, that we're being invited to something. And it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And in this set of verses, we need to pay attention, right? Because what's happening here is we're going to begin to see a shift in the content of the letter. What we have seen thus far has been utterly characterized by a word that I call indicative, meaning it is telling us something that is, not only something that is about God, and who He is and what He's done through Jesus, but also about who we then are, right? That we are now the people of God, that we've been grafted into this family of God, that we are saints together with Jesus, right? That this is who we are because of who God is and what He's done for us through Jesus. But what we're going to see here is we're going to see a shift from the indicative to the imperative, meaning here... Here's where we're going to get into how now should we live. If this is who God is, if this is what he's done for us in Jesus, and if this is who we are, how do we live? What would he have us to do? And so he says, Jesus Christ is the Lord, right? That's the proclamation of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus Christ is is the Lord, and it's upon this confession, or with this confession, confession, that we are called to now walk. And it says in verse 7, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so what's Paul saying, right? It's in this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord that we are rooted, built up, established, right? And I love the contrast that we get here when we, when we nerd out on the grammar. Because what we begin to see is that we're called to it, to something that's active, a faith that is active, right? As you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, so walk in Him. But He goes immediately back to passive verbs. That it's in this confession that we are rooted, built up, established in the faith. So walking is something we do, but being rooted, being established by this confession of faith as in Jesus Christ as Lord, that's something that happens to us by the grace of Jesus. And so we should be abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it. This is where we get into uh, the meat of the imperatives. See to it. Make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ and so what is paul saying see to it make sure that no one takes you captive and this is where paul's the translation of paul gets a little bit difficult but i think it can be more easily understood if we translated it this way see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy that is empty deceit that is from human tradition. And then it says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And so Paul here is making an assertion about how we've come to this conclusion about about living life. The elemental spirits of the world, that, that, that first instance of sin now brought down in human tradition, expressed through philosophy, which is really just deceit. When the source is the elemental principles of the world, when the source is human tradition alone, Paul says that that philosophy is only deceitful. It will only deceive. And so we're not to be captivated by that. Rather, we're to be captive to, captivated by who? Christ, as it says in verse 8. And so we proceed to verse 9. It says, for in Him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, right? We talked about this at length last week, that in Jesus there is no lack of God. He is the full expression of God in the body of flesh. And then in verse 10 it says this, and you, Christians, have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule. And authority. And so what does it tell us, right? It tells us that in Christ alone is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily, but in Him we now also have been filled. And so in the same sense that there is no lack in Christ, there is now no lack in us. We have been filled in Him. There is nothing remaining, no room to make up. And so then we get into now, Paul's going to get into the particulars of what that means with specific references to religious practices of the day, right? He's going to tell us why it's important for us to see that we are full, filled to the brim, right, in Christ, that there is nothing to be added, nothing that can be added. And in verse 11, he gives us the example of circumcision, right? So this is what it says, In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision that is made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, circumcision is not something that we think about regularly um, for probably many reasons, but at the time... Right? At the time, this is an act, a physical act, that has vast social significance. This was the physical expression, the physical sign by which Jewish identity within the covenant of God was discerned. This is the way you were known as a member of God's family. And yet, and what, what's, what's so great, we, and we don't have time to dive into this, but what's so great is that even in this physical act and even in the Old Testament, God continually expresses a concern not only for physical circumcision, but for the circumcision of the heart, which is what that symbol is supposed to represent. And Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 2, and here in Colossians, right? He affirms that the spiritual circumcision that is what is necessitated has now been provided for us in Jesus. That's why it says that we've been circumcised not with a circumcision made by hands, but rather by Jesus being cut off for us. And so what Paul is telling them is that it is through their union with Christ, it's because they are filled By Him in whom the fullness of deity dwells. That they are not only buried with Him, but they are raised with Him. That they are not only raised with Him as some sort of zombie, but that they are made truly and fully alive in Him. And that before Him they are forgiven. That the record of their debt has been canceled Is what it says in verse 14 when it tells us that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, setting it aside by nailing it to the cross. So again, Paul's inviting these people not to look at the external symbols of religion, but rather to look at the heart, to look at what Jesus has done inside of them and to live from that reality. Verse 16 goes on to say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Right? Again, let no one, see to it that no one passes judgment on you with regard to what? With regard to these religious rituals, right? This is a clear reference to the Old Testament dietary laws and festal calendars, right? Right? He's saying, let no one pass judgment on you according to those. Why? Verse 17, because those are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The substance Belongs to Christ. The Old Testament dietary laws and feasts were a shadow. But now, in Jesus, we see the person to whom that shadow belongs. And so the shadow is incomplete. We no longer need it. Because we have the person himself. Verse 18. Again, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up up without reason by a sensuous mind not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And Paul goes on to say, If with Christ you have died to these elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so what does Paul say? Essentially, what is sort of the the overarching theme of his argument. It's that we have been made alive in Christ, that salvation, right, our cleanliness, our cleansing before God has been taken care of in Him and we have been filled in Him in such a way that we don't need to add these layers of religion. Whether that's circumcision, whether that's food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath, whether that's asceticism or the worship of angels or these visions or any other thing. Paul is saying that that all of those things, they may have an outward appearance of wisdom, but that really they are of no value. They're of no value. And so what is this text calling us to? Well, it's calling us to allow our doing, what we do, to proceed from our being, who we are. It's it's calling us to say no to the addition of anything upon the full and finished work of Christ. We're being called to walk in Him. Right? So we're being called not only to confess that He is Lord of all, which is what we talked about last week, this preeminent Christ that we've been called to delight in, to confess. It's not only to confess that He is Lord of all, but also to live like He's Lord of all. And you know what that means? Beyond, before we get to any action, right? before we get to any, any proactive measure of following Jesus, What it first means is it means trusting Him when He says this, My grace is sufficient for you. It means to trust Him when He says that it's in Him that the way, the truth, and the life resides, that no one comes to the Father but through Him. And so what we begin to see is that this... This logically flows out of everything that we talked about last week, that where last week we were being called by the text to a singular delight in Christ, this morning we're being called to a singular trust in Christ. Paul is saying that we can't delight in Christ alone and then try to follow Him in a way that says we don't trust in Him alone. This is the curse of the legalist, and I belong to this tribe. Like if we talk about leaning towards grace, immoralism, or towards moralism and legalism, I'm, I'm over here because I like rules, because they can be quantified, because I can measure myself according to them and with and against other people. Right? That's my temptation, and I think that that's not abnormal. I think I'm not the only one. And so what happens is that we begin to look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're so great. You did such great things, and here's my moral ability. And here are my good works. Right? We perceive a lack in us, and rather than filling it with Him in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, we try to fill it with our own moral abilities, our own philosophical soothings. That's our, that's our failure. We are by nature syncretist. Here's what I mean by that. By nature, we like to combine our different moral and religious practices into our own moral religious cocktail that we order at the bar with pride because it's unique and innovative. Why do we do this? I think there's two fundamental reasons. I, I think There there are probably more, but these are the two that stood out most clearly to me in thinking about this. The first one is this. We are prone to add things, layer things on top of the gospel, right? We're prone to add religiosity and moralism on top of the work of Jesus first because we feel like it makes the door to God a little bit bigger, meaning Every good deed that we do makes God a little more obligated to open when we knock. Or, and here's the second reason, or our religion and our moralism makes us feel better about ourselves. Right? It makes us feel like we paid extra on our loans this month, and so we're actually eating into the principle instead of keeping the interest at bay only. And so where a singular delight in Jesus should naturally lead us to a singular trust in Jesus, we're instead found trusting Jesus and our particular blend, our particular cocktail of moral religious refreshment. And what Paul tells us is that this is of no help. That ultimately these things will fail us. How so? It says that they are of no value in stopping, what? The indulgence of the flesh, right? And in both of those situations, right, that's what's accusing us, right? God's not going to let me in because I'm indulging the flesh, and so religion, religion, religion. Or if I want to put God in my debt, if I want the sweetest cul-de-sac in heaven, Then, religion, 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 religion. And yet the reality is that come the next morning, we will fail, and we we will once again be accused, and there will be no amount of religion, there will be no amount of religious practices that we can acquire enough of in order to stop the indulgence of the flesh. What he's telling us is that religion can't make us holy. That external acts of fealty to God can't make us holy. Only Jesus does that. And how does he do it? Oh, well, Look at that in Matthew chapter 5 here in just a second. But this is what, again, I think makes the Christian claim unique against the backdrop of what I think are essentially the same lines of thinking, whether religious and moral or whether amoral and philosophical. You see, because Jesus didn't just come to simply reinforce the law that the Jews already knew and were already striving to complete. But that's often how we look at Jesus, right? We just say Jesus came and He was a good teacher. He taught us how we should live so that God would be happy with us. If that was the case, then there's nothing spectacular about Him coming. There's not. They already had the law. They already had years of religious tradition, years of religious knowledge about what it means to walk righteously before God. And so for Jesus to only come and reinforce that would have been meh at best. You see, He didn't just come to reinforce the law, He came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to give them something to strive to complete, He came so that they so that they could be complete. And this is why Paul says that in Jesus, we have been filled utterly. Let's let Jesus speak for himself in Matthew chapter 5, this sermon on the mount that he delivers right at the beginning. This is what Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what does Jesus say? The law is still incumbent upon us. Sure, I've not come to be rid of it, but I have come to fulfill it. And He goes, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we read that, right, isolated from the rest of the story, it would drive us to religion, wouldn't it? I mean, listen to what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is saying to the common person, right, out on this sermon, out on the mount, He's saying, look, unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees, who are the morally elite, right? They've got it all together. Understanding of the law. Carrying out of the law, right? At least externally. And Paul looks at these people and he says you're not more righteous than them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have caused lumps to develop in throats, hands to tremble, foreheads to sweat as people went through and just go, I don't know how I'm going to do that. But when we understand what Jesus meant when he says that he came to fulfill the law, We understand that actually in this, there is utter and great hope. You see, because Jesus lived out every jot, every dot, every iota of the law perfectly so that it might be fulfilled. And it's only because He fulfilled the law for us that we can say now that our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Because it's not our righteousness, Because it's Jesus's, and Jesus's righteousness is perfect. You see, outwardly, the external actions, the moral superiority of the Pharisees was not only far beyond many of the people that Jesus was speaking to there, it's also far beyond us. But their righteousness is still lacking that's what Jesus is saying here. Their righteousness is still lacking. It still must be exceeded because what is necessary is perfection. You see, in this, both the legalist and the immoral are both sinners in need of Jesus' perfect law-living life in place of their own. Jesus just levels the playing field. I don't care if you're a Pharisee or a scribe or the sinner of sinners, what you need is a righteousness that exceeds both of you. This is why the words prideful Christian should never occupy the same sentence. It should be a contradiction in terms, a paradox. Because Christ is the morally superior one, not us. And so Jesus fulfills the law so that we can receive life. He fulfills religion so that we can enjoy relationship, which is why John 15 tells us that now we abide in Jesus. Right? This is what Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So what does Jesus say? We abide in him and we abide in Him because we have been made clean. And how have we been made clean? We've been made clean by the pronouncement of His word over us. You know what that word is? It is finished. Or it is fulfilled. Or it is accomplished. We have been utterly joined to Jesus. And His life pulses through us as the branches that are attached to this life-giving vine in which this life flows freely, fully, without cost. So the morality of the Christian springs forth first from the vine that sends life and godliness into the branches who by their very nature, by virtue of their union with the vine, produce fruit. So what do we do with this, right? What does it mean not only to delight in Jesus, but also to trust in Jesus only? Furthermore, how do we know that we're trusting in Jesus? Well, I think the key is given to us in Colossians 2 verse 7, and I'm going to read verse 6 just to keep the thought complete, but this is what it says. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. If gratefulness both to and for Jesus is not the undercurrent of our lives, then discontentment will be. And you know what grows in the soil of discontentment? Plausible arguments, philosophy, human deceit, tradition, worldliness. When we're not thankful, when our heart is not characterized by gratitude, by thanksgiving, what we're ultimately perceiving is that there's a lack That there's something in us that has yet to be filled. And yet Paul says that in the man in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, we have now been filled. You see, Paul makes the argument that it's discontentment that drives us to religion. And in verse 23, we're told that religion only leads us to more discontentment. leads to discontentment because it has no power. It doesn't create holiness, and holiness is what we need. And this is true of every religion or every secular worldview, where we abide by codes, external codes, in hopes that what is internal will be mitigated and or soothed. And what makes Christianity different is that the Bible says that our internals are not only changed, but that they're made new. And that all of our external codes now grow out of this new internal nature as a natural consequence. I mean, isn't that essentially... And I'm, I'm, I'm very much generalizing and simplifying here, but isn't that the essence of all religion and secular worldview? If only we did these things then all of these problems external to us would be solved and the internal good would flow out. Christianity is the exact opposite. In us, internally, is the wreckage and the burning and we need an external solution for an internal problem. And Paul tells us that in Jesus, that's been afforded to us. In Jesus, we have been filled with the fullness of His being, His deity. If we go back to John 15, right, we notice that if we are followers of Jesus, He is the vine and we are attached to Him. And it is when we are attached to Him that we grow and produce fruit. I didn't read verse 6 for a reason. I want to read it now in John chapter 15. This is what happens when we don't abide in Jesus. If anyone does not abide in me. He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And here's the thing. I think that this is certainly an allusion to hell, but it is not only an allusion to hell. It is also, at the same time, an allusion to what it means to live life outside of Christ. There is none. That life and flourishing and humanity and dignity, none of those are produced apart from Him. None of those can be found if we are not grafted into their very source. And this is why I say that verse 7 is the key. He's the only one we can trust. He's the only one we can trust to change us at our very core, at our nature. We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust the latest self-help book, the latest philosophy, the latest line of thinking, the latest life hack. None of it will work. But we can trust Him. And the most measurable sign that we are trusting God is whether or not we have a posture of thanksgiving, a posture of gratitude. And why is that? Because when we are filled with thanksgiving, we know, right, thanksgiving is is often given not because of something that we've earned, right? When we've earned something, we're like, yeah, like, I deserve that. I'm not thankful for that. That's mine. I earned it. But when someone gives us something we don't deserve, what's the first instinct? Oh, it's thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And if the gospel and the very core of the gospel, the very heart of the gospel, is that we have received our life, not earned our life, then our lives are characterized by thanksgiving, abounding in it, as Paul says. You see, when we're not thankful, we are fundamentally saying that there is lack in us, and yet Paul tells us that there is none, that we are filled that there is no crevice of our lives or the universe, that Jesus is not able to or does not purpose to fill with His glory. Which is why Habakkuk 2.14 says that one day, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So it then follows that for the Christian, the cultivation of thanksgiving and gratitude is paramount. If we are continue, if we are to continue walking in trust of who Jesus is and what he has done rather than who we are in and of ourselves and what we can hope to accomplish. And so how do we do that? How do we cultivate thanksgiving? Well, it's simple. Verse 6 says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do we cultivate thanksgiving? We dive into this glorious mystery that Colossians is unfolding us. The mystery revealed in Jesus that righteousness, although it could not be attained by us, has now been attained for us. And that we obtain His inheritance and His righteousness in spite of our unrighteousness. And that it's to the measure, to the degree, right, that we saturate ourselves in that that we experience thanksgiving, that we experience fullness and thus perceive no lack and thus do not wander into human deceit, into human traditions and philosophies. If we're less tuned into what Jesus has actually done on our behalf, then we will be less likely to be characterized by thanksgiving if we are less tuned in to how utterly He has approved of us, how He has utterly rescued us, and how utterly and eternally He has revived us from death, then we will fail to live in the freedom that we have been purposed to live in. You know, it's appropriate that today is Reformation Sunday. This is essentially what the entire Reformation was about, right? The gospel had been lost or at least distorted or obscured amidst a bunch of added religious requirements. And 499 years ago tomorrow, Luther published the 95 Thesis there at Wittenberg, and the Reformation was begun. The Reformation said this, right? We... we, we, We synthesize the the thinking of the Reformation in those five solas, right? Where we are told that it's, it's in Scripture alone that we find the only salvation that has been made available, a salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not of works so that none can boast, and to the glory of God alone. This is what that was all about. And in the first thesis, Luther writes this When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And, brothers and sisters, essentially, what Colossians 2, verses 6 through 23 are calling us to is to repentance is to repent of when we think that we can do what Jesus did for ourselves, is to repent of trying to take control of our moral livelihood in our own hands, is to repent of believing that we are morally superior because of our own power and ability, and to turn to and abide in the life in the vine. This is why the Bible tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Because in it, we are being reformed. In it, we are being not conformed to the ways of the world, but rather transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus by his word. I want to read one more small portion of John 15, and I skipped it purposefully, but it's the first two verses of John 15. Because I think in repentance, this is what's taking place. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Brothers and sisters, when we repent of our ingratitude, when we repent of our thanklessness, We are being pruned in order that we might bear more fruit. And the fruit of God is life. The fruit of God is freedom from the bondage and slavery to sin and to death. And so where religion has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, consumption with and gratitude towards Jesus is utterly useful toward that end. And so brothers and sisters, may we repent today with gratitude that our salvation does not depend upon us because we have been filled to the brim by Him in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. Again, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together with your people. We thank you, Lord, this morning that you have qualified us, that you no longer pass judgment upon us because the judgment that was due to us was placed upon Jesus instead. That he has substituted himself in our place He has borne the wrath of our unrighteousness so that we might have perfect righteousness. And Lord, in this, may we see that you have provided for us eternally everything that we need. And as we come to the table, may we proclaim that, Lord, that you have sustained us by the broken body and blood of Jesus, that this sustenance is sufficient for us, that we don't need anything else. We don't need anything but the bread of His body, the cup of His blood. Not for life, not for godliness, not for sustenance, not for anything. We are wholly reliant and dependent upon Him. And so this morning, may we take the sacrament both with delight and with trust. May we not only come take it as a ritual in hopes that maybe, just maybe, this will really get us this time, that it will really actually get to us, but that we would take it and that we would trust that what it signifies is true because you are faithful. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray, Father, that as we conclude this morning, we would rejoice with thanksgiving according to the measure of grace that we have been shown, and that is exceeding and abundant. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Communion is how the church is reminded of Jesus' death on our behalf.